0: From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. Depending on where you live, right about now, you might be feeling very ready for the end of winter. If you live in California, like I do, there's a good chance you're thinking, I've had enough of these atmospheric rivers. How about some sun? No matter where you live, these final days leading up to the start of spring tend to inspire wanderlust. We dream of big trips, and so we call up friends and we say, Hey, I'm in thinking. Would you want to? And if you're lucky, they say yes, and the planning begins. I'm Michael Roberts, and one of the things I've learned over many years of pre-spring restlessness is to be mindful of who you invite on an adventure. Because if you really are going for it, your partner is the one who has to save your bacon if things go wrong. And if you're in remote wilderness, that may mean they're racing out to get help while you wait and hope they get back in time. Which brings us to today's episode, a replay of one of our Science of Survival stories from back in 2017 produced by Robbie Carver. It's about two friends who are used to everything going right on their trips. Until suddenly, something didn't. And it would take the extraordinary depth of their friendship to get through it. Here's Robbie.
1: Imagine you live in a small town in northern Minnesota. The kind of town that only needs one of everything. Where everyone knows everyone else. The type of town where the accent makes you sound like it's just the gosh darn best day of your life. In this little town, let's call it Arbor League. Imagine you have a mailman. Let's call him Scott Percy.
2: Morning, Robbie. How are you? Because that's his name. Uh, sunshine, so this time of year, we'll take it. Imagine
1: Ned Flanders were your mailman, yeah. and you'd be pretty close. Yeah. You're probably right. <laughs> He's that reliable, easygoing kind of guy you'd just want for a friend.
2: I can relate. I can
1: relate. He's so happy-go-lucky, sometimes you just want to call him up and sing him a song.
3: Hello? I don't know if you've been listening to Common, but... He just played a
2: song that goes like this. I am aligned with a bounty.
1: That's Bob Starts. He and Scott have been friends for over 30 years. And Bob has been giving Scott a hard time for about 29 and a
2: half of them. I walk with my feet pointed out for some reason. I don't know, it's just just my gait. And um, I deliver his mail at his house, and he always gives me a hard time about leaving footprints in his yard. And... There was a penguin out in my front yard, you know, (laughs) called Animal Control to see if they could find him.
1: (laughs) Bob was in his early 50s, tall and athletic. He'd been a diver in college and still had the shoulders to prove it. He was a rock-solid friend with a booming laugh and a quick wit. Life of the party, partner in his law firm, close to his children and even closer to his wife. He was that annoying guy you know for whom everything and really, I mean everything, had always gone his way. He just had that kind of luck. But this story is about when that luck ran out. And Scott was left racing the clock to save Bob's perfect life.
2: Um, I would describe it, uh, let's see. First of all, the vastness of it the fact that it's it's such a unique and unspoiled wilderness
1: our story takes place in the Boundary Waters a million acre wilderness in northern Minnesota and Scott's playground since the 70's there are other there are no roads no clear cuts and aside from a few campsites no sign of civilization the best way to get around is by canoe portaging between the thousands of lakes
2: That wilderness is virtually unchanged up there. You're traveling some of the same areas, the same portages, the same lakes, in the same paths, the same directions, and the same trips that the Ojibwe and the Indians and Native Americans from years ago, hundreds of years ago traveled. And after that, the uh, French-Canadian voyagers who traveled those same areas, those same lakes, and took those same portages, walked on those same portage paths.
1: Scott tries to make it to the Boundary Waters at least once every month. But nothing said one trip couldn't knock out two months at once. So in the final days of March 2012, he geared up for a three-day trip that would take him into April. He was hoping the lakes had thawed after a mild winter and planning to go alone. But as he was getting his things together, he gave Bob a call to let him know where he was heading. And Bob wanted in.
2: But I do remember saying, listen, Bob, this is the end of March. It's going to be cold. It's going to be cold. The weather might not be good. We might get snow. It might be icy. There might, You know, it's not going to be like going in July when it's beautiful. Um, he says, I know, I know. So that was the only hesitation, and he said, no, I'm in.
1: Bob was maybe looking forward to the cold. He had just returned from a family trip to the Cayman Islands. For two weeks, he'd been parasailing, spending time with his new son-in-law, and chasing grandkids around the beach. They'd barely unpacked when he asked his wife, Lisa, if he could join Scott for the weekend.
4: It was just such a unique opportunity. He was so excited to go, and he loved going to the Boundary Waters with Scott. That was just a real favorite activity of his.
1: So they loaded their canoe and dry bags and began the five-hour drive north, toward the kind of wilderness that just begs to be accompanied by gentle guitar music. Around Ely, the last town before they entered the Boundary Waters, Bob gave Lisa a call
4: all right, I'm about to lose cell service, so this is the last time I'm gonna talk to you for a few days. So that was the expectation, yeah.
1: The plan had been to paddle a three-day loop along the Canadian border, where it was legal to fish that time of year.
2: We stopped at the ranger cabin, and we found out that the lakes were still frozen. So it ruled out that trip.
1: So they decided to do something a bit closer in. Scott knew of a nearby lake that had good access to hiking trails, and the ranger confirmed it was free of ice. So instead of a loop, they decided they canoe into a campsite, and from there make day trips.
2: Got to the entry point, and one of the great signs I like to see uh, when you get to the entry point is you're the only car there.
1: They unloaded the car, packed up the canoe, and began their hike to the lake. It was a warm day, and they left footprints in the melting snow. Scott led the way, while Bob cracked jokes about bringing pet penguins camping.
2: That lake had a big body of water where we started, and then it kind of split in two different areas, a a bigger bay and then into another lake.
1: They spent a few hours paddling, checking each campsite because they had the lake to themselves. Scott wanted a perfect fire pit. Bob wanted a perfect view.
2: And I think there were three campsites on that lake. So it just so happened the best one was the one farthest away from the portage. So um, we paddled up to that site, and... um, and it was a beauty, you know. We pulled up and said, "This is this is going to be home for the next couple of days." So
1: they made camp, smoked cigars, and drank a little peach schnapps that Bob brought along. They talked well into the night, burning through their wood pile as Bob told stories, feeling like they were the only two people in the world.
2: That first night that we were sleeping there, I woke up and he was snoring. And on my pad, on my pad, you know, he'd moved, kind of scooched over. So, so I remember I was thought, okay, what am I going to do here? I said, I'm going to hopefully, you know, wake him to get him to stop snoring, but I'm getting him off my pad. So then I just started to slowly shove him off my pad, just slowly, slowly. And then I hear him stop. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, "Uh, Bob, you're on my pad. He goes, no, I'm not. I said, yeah, you are. And then, and then there's a, silence and he goes, what, you don't like to snuggle?
1: (laughs) The next day, Scott made breakfast of muffins, eggs, and bacon. Bob stuffed himself, raving between bites. After a slow morning, they canoed across the lake to a spot that had some ancient pictographs of the Ojibwe tribe. Bob raved about those, too. After lunch, the plan was to continue to the end of the lake and portage across to a
2: backpacking trail that they could hike. They
1: paddled out but then Bob started acting
2: a little weird. Well, we got halfway from the portage to that trail, and Bob was complaining of a headache. He said it was really hurting, but he's not a complainer. He really isn't. So I knew that he's complaining about it. It must really hurt. And then it started to rain, too. And then I said, well, let's just go back. You know, we can get you some Advil or whatever. And... and uh,
1: so with Bob's head pounding and the rain beginning to fall, the decision was easy. They turned around and headed for the campsite.
2: I just remember when we got back, then he went to the first aid kit and got some Advil. And uh, and then after just a short time, seemed a lot better. Um, either, either he was a lot better, or he just wanted me to think he was a lot better, one of the two. We had... Um, supper that night and i'm guessing it was those little pizza things i had that night and he just loved them he had a ton of them and um and then yeah he was on much more of a role that second night with his storytelling than the first he'd, he'd tell a story i'd heard before and have you heard this and i'd say no but he, he knew that i had <laughs> so he'd just go off and tell me again
1: it was a perfect night warm next to the fire and they stayed up late telling stories laughing, drinking watered, powdered coffee. As they talked, Scott noticed that a dense fog was beginning to settle around them.
2: But I do remember sitting by the fire, looking out past the fire, and thinking, geez, you know, it's pretty thick out there.
1: It was a passing observation, the kind that you notice somewhere in the back of your head, but file away to think about later. Nothing to worry about. Kind of like a headache. Eventually, they decided to call it a night, and headed back into the tent. Just as they got into their bags, Bob sat up and said he was cold. Then he said it again. Then he said nothing. In fact, he couldn't speak.
2: He unzipped his bag and then he was sitting up and he reached down to unzip his bag and he pulled on the zipper, but he didn't grab it. You know, he just kind of motioned like he was grabbing it. And I. I didn't I couldn't figure out what he was doing you know and then he'd he'd reached down to try to grab it again and then it, it didn't make any sense to me you know and I said Bob what are you doing and then he kept doing that reaching down to grab the zipper to pull it up and and I kept repeating I said Bob what what are you doing do you need help with your zipper or what he looked over at me and didn't say anything for someone as boisterous and as gregarious as Bob is, to not answer was really alarming. So he laid down and I kept trying to talk to him. I said, Bob, what's going on? You know, talk to me, say something. And I kept repeating it. And at this point I thought, what is going on? May- hypothermia, but that didn't make sense. And it's not like we'd he'd fell fall in the water and and was wet and we couldn't get him warm and we were sitting by the fire, you know, just minutes ago. Put my arm around him and asked him again, you know, what was wrong. You know, just talk to me. And I don't know how long I laid there, but, but I remember thinking in my mind, I've got three choices. I can either lay with him until morning. I can try to take him with me, get him in the canoe, and get him somewhere. Or I can just leave him and take off by myself. And, oh, talk about a tough decision.
1: Scott knew staying put wasn't an option he had to reach cell reception and call for help. Nor was there any real chance that he could drag Bob into the canoe or hope to keep the canoe steady enough on his own with Bob in it. He decided he really only had one choice.
2: I laid there and I told him, Bob, I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna get somebody to help and I'll bring him back as fast as I can. I told him three times, don't get up promise me you won't get up and he shook his head in a way that was confirmation that I knew he understood what I was saying I've got to tell you I've never done anything harder in my life to leave to leave a friend that's in trouble I mean oh it's a a tough decision
0: We'll be right back. And now, back to our story.
1: What they didn't know was that Bob's headache earlier that day was the result of a small tear in his carotid artery, which is the big one in your neck that you can sometimes see pulsing. This tear, called a dissection, can happen to anyone and was most likely the result of a rapid overextension of his neck sometime in the past few weeks. It didn't need to be much. A little whiplash, a wrestling match with one of his grandchildren, or even a genetic predisposition to thinner arteries. In fact, Bob had woken up a few days before with some swelling in his neck and had gone to the doctor. He was told not to worry about it. But, like a strong hose taking paint off a house the blood in the artery had ripped into the tear and begun to peel the lining away. This separation deforms and can feel like a migraine. In fact, dissections are often discovered when a patient comes in complaining of the worst headache of their life.
2: I wondered, could he comprehend you know, why I had to do it? What a, what a scary thing for him. What a horrific thing for him to think, OK, I've got one person with me in this troubled situation. And he's leaving?
1: Scott grabbed his life jacket, map, and paddle, and raced to the canoe. He planned to shoot straight across the lake as fast as he could to reach his car and drive to cell service. He grabbed an extra flashlight,
2: too. I remember the sickening feeling of pointing that flashlight out towards the lake and realizing that didn't matter, might as well not even have it on, it made no difference, the fog was so thick. I couldn't see very far at all.
1: The whole lake was enveloped, and Scott would be paddling inside a cloud. He was lost before he even left camp.
2: I couldn't afford to hit the wrong shore and think I'm somewhere I'm not and start paddling around for hours trying to figure out where I was. It was so frustrating not being able to just jump in and paddle as hard as I could. Who knows, That could loop right back around to our own campsite, you know. I mean, if you get turned around.
1: But instead of panicking, Scott got smart. He remembered Bob taking pictures of a tree growing out of the lake, perched on a small island. Even though he couldn't see it, Scott knew that tree was a straight shot from the campsite. Hit that rock, and he'd know exactly where he was on the lake. From there, he could use the orientation of the island to aim for the next obvious marker, the peninsula that jutted out into the water. In this way, choosing one nearby baseline at a time, he could reach the correct bay. He checked his map one last time and set off.
2: When I found that island and that little rock and then took off from there, as soon as I started to paddle there, it hit me he had a stroke.
1: Bob had suffered what's called an ischemic stroke which is when blood is blocked from reaching the brain. This creates the classic signs, confusion, loss of mobility, and often an inability to speak. This happened when the deformation from the tear in his artery created a small blood clot called a microemboli. Sometime near the end of the night, it broke free. Pushed by the bloodstream, it would have only taken seconds, minutes at most, to shoot into his brain and create a blockage, a kind of dam where the artery narrowed keeping oxygen-rich blood from continuing to the brain. His brain, quite literally, was suffocating.
2: From what the little I knew about strokes is that time was an issue.
1: In fact, every minute after a stroke is said to destroy almost two million brain cells, which has led to the quite literal medical statement, time is brain. Immediate medical intervention can drastically reduce the impact of the stroke, But even with recent advances in technology, Bob only had a few hours before the damage was permanent. A few more beyond that, and he'd die.
2: When I got down to where the portage was, I couldn't find it. It The fog was so thick, I couldn't find it. I, I passed it, not knowing I went past it. And I started to question whether I came down the right way. But then I I replayed everything in my head. I said, no, 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 this has to be the right bay. This has to be the right point. So I turned around, and the second time around, I found it.
1: Scott got out of the canoe and raced up the long trail, berating himself for not being able to go faster, getting angry when he had to pause to catch his breath. Eventually, he made it to his car.
2: As soon as I pulled out of the parking lot, I called, and I was shocked that the phone rang. I was shocked, but so happy. You know, I called 911, and I said, I'm in the wilderness, my friend has had a stroke, we need to get him some help. And that was basically it. So, my next call was to Lisa, and that was a tough call.
4: Oh, yeah, you know, and I almost didn't even get out of bed to answer. (laughs) Yeah, but I can remember the phone ringing and making the choice to get up and answer it and then disbelief when it was Scott it didn't really sink in I mean my husband was so healthy that there was just no possibility in my mind that it could be anything serious
2: I just remember how calm and reassuring she was and thankful that Help was on the way, and we were going to get him help.
1: For both Scott and Lisa, there was nothing to do now but wait, hoping that Bob was okay, hoping that Scott had made the right decision to leave him.
2: In woods like that, I'd never heard a siren or noise that loud before. It's amazing how far that travels. I heard that siren miles away.
1: It took forever,
2: but help was finally here.
1: But at first, they weren't any more helpful. The medics had arrived without life jackets, and Scott only had his own. No problem, he said. You can take mine, and let's go. But the medics needed everyone to have a life jacket. And as Bob continued to lose brain cells, they were stuck.
2: So so we sat there and waited while I had someone there that could help him. I, well, I couldn't believe it.
1: The second crew was only a few minutes behind, but this time with a boat too large to carry down the portage. But they did have life jackets. So Scott and an EMT, a woman named Johnny, Paddled back to Bob.
2: It was as traumatic as paddling out, but it was a different traumatic. It was it was the feeling of we got to get back there. I hope he hasn't walked in the lake. I hope he's still in the tent. I hope he's all right. Johnny and I got out of the canoe, and um, I walked with her to the tent, and that was a tough walk.
1: Bob was in the tent. Breathing, but unchanged from the state Scott had left him in. He was in bad shape, and nothing the EMTs could do would stop the stroke's progress. But he was alive.
2: So I remember feeling much, being able to, you know, take a big sigh and breathe,
1: It was 4 a.m. when Lisa got the second call. Bob was at the hospital in Ely, in critical condition, but it wasn't a big enough hospital to give him the care he needed. They were going to pick him up in a helicopter, but the same thick fog from the lake was now shrouding the hospital, and flying would be impossible. He'd have to be taken by ambulance, and this would take hours, burning up even more time. Even more brain. Lisa said she'd meet Scott there and drove six hours to the hospital.
2: I remember just giving her a great big hug and we just cried. Cried together. Um, Do you remember what you said? I don't remember specifically, but I I think I remember something like, you know, so sorry this happened. You know, I did my best. Um, and once again she's so reassuring and to uh, I can't tell you how that helped me
4: Scott was there to greet me and just the the devastation on his face and then to see Bob laid out in the ICU with IVs and everything, and he was so still. Well, then it started to occur to me that he could die. That was, um, I mean, that's when the reality hits you pretty hard. And yet, you know, he's this big, strong person. You know, I just didn't know. You know, I thought he'll he'll pull through, right? He'll pull through he will beat
1: the odds. Starved of oxygen, neurons quickly die. And like a blight spreading through a forest, whole regions of the brain wither. Because of where the carotid artery begins to narrow and branch, the areas most affected by this blight are memory, motor control, and language. Even if he survived, it was possible Bob would never speak or move again. But the stroke itself wasn't Bob's only problem.
4: There was one moment, the worst moment in the hospital was um, his brain started to swell 48 hours after the stroke. And I had to choose. Okay, the operation to remove part of his skull so his brain could expand that way or let him go without knowing um, what would be left if he survived. No one should have to make that decision.
1: Bob's swelling was caused by a breakdown of what's called the blood-brain barrier, which is a multi-celled sheath lining the walls of the blood vessels in the brain. It keeps contaminants in the blood out. But when the blood vessels inside the brain lose oxygen, holes begin to form in this normally impenetrable wall. And even though the artery is blocked, some fluids still get through and leak into the brain tissue. The brain begins to swell like a sponge soaking up water. And with nowhere else to go, the swollen area begins to shove on other parts, pushing them into the hole where your spine enters at the base of your skull. If this happens, it's fatal.
4: You know, I thought, what if I condemn him to a life he hates. It's a huge responsibility. But he's always been kind of a lucky person, kind of lived a charmed life. Things would go his way, and I just really couldn't believe that it wouldn't go well for him again.
1: The fog and the hours in the tent waiting to be rescued. The life jacket delays that kept the first responders from reaching him the 100-mile ambulance ride to a hospital with the right equipment. And now, Lisa was told he had a 5% chance of surviving the surgery to fix the swelling. It seemed like luck had refused to go on the trip with Bob at all, and there was no indication it had found its way to the hospital now. As the doctors wheeled him away for surgery, Lisa collapsed. She didn't know if she'd ever hear Bob's voice again. Do you remember the weekend in the Boundary Waters?
3: Yes. About two, I was um, feeling kind of rosy. I, I can't remember after that. I remember, though, don't leave. Um, okay, I won't. Don't leave three times don't leave okay i won't so yeah
1: bob regained consciousness two and a half weeks later but he couldn't speak and had lost muscular function in most of his body nor could he breathe or eat on his own and for a man for whom everything used to come easy Relearning these most basic skills over the first year of his recovery has taken all he has to give.
4: About three hours of therapy in the morning and then three hours of therapy in the afternoon. Physical therapist, um, occupational therapist, and then a speech therapist. So an already compromised person with six hours of intense therapy a day.
1: Given time and willpower and coaching, the brain will find new paths to old skills. But dead neurons don't return. And like a radiation zone, even the damaged region can no longer sustain living tissue. So the brain has to adapt. If part of a neural network remains undamaged, it can build out from there, sort of like a train making tracks as it goes. Interestingly, people who are more adept at using both sides of their brain, left-handers, for example, have a better recovery rate because the neural information that allows them to move and speak tends to be spread out across both hemispheres. Like having more eggs in different baskets around the brain. When the brain is damaged, it releases a protein called growth and differentiation factor 10, or GDF10, which encourages healthy and partially damaged neurons to do what's called axonal sprouting. Growing new axons that reach out, searching for each other, creating new connections around the damaged regions. What's amazing is that it's an entirely different process than what happens during normal development and learning. And while it's not perfect, the more focused repetition a stroke victim does in rehabilitation, the stronger these connections become. But it's not easy.
4: And the physical therapist trying to get him to walk, it was interesting. It was a toss up over who was sweating more, Bob or the therapist. (laughs) So I can remember initially counting them and being so thrilled. Bob walked 25 steps today. You know, those were milestones.
3: Oh, God. I mean, everything is hard, but I have no choice So do it. You know?
1: It's been five years since Bob's stroke in the Boundary Waters. Today, he can talk in short sentences and walks with the help of a cane. And while by all accounts his recovery has been remarkable, he will never get the use of his right arm back and can't do many basic things on his own. His speech may not improve further, and he still has difficulty remembering things. But worst of all has been losing the rewards of a life well lived.
3: I mean, the thing is, I had everything. Um, um, a... Find God, okay, I was really good at everything. I mean, really, but now not so much.
1: In the year before he could speak again, before any of them knew how much of his old life he'd regain. Lisa wondered if she'd made the right choice.
4: I've shared with him my... agonizing over that decision. Did I make the right decision? And he's told me, yes, you did. So, you know, he's he's not... He doesn't have the life he had once, but he still has a good life.
1: Do you Do you feel like you have your husband back?
4: Yes, I do. We actually you'd be surprised um i don't know we had an argument somewhere along the process about i think emptying the dishwasher and then taking a step back and saying this is a fight over something so stupid but it's so normal and real <laughs> like <laughs> it felt good to have an argument over something so stupid <laughs>
3: Um, Really good person. I mean, where, uh, my wife is everything to me now, really.
4: He doesn't get to go to work anymore or drive a car, mow the lawn. Would you believe that? He's jealous because I mow the lawn now. But he's not bitter, He's he's still that same kind person. He's amazing. And how he's handled it, and just testament to the kind of person he is.
1: He may not be so barrel-chested anymore, but Bob has kept his gregarious laugh and sharp wit. He still raves about everything. And he still has a penguin joke ready for one of his favorite times of the day, when the friendly neighborhood mailman pauses along his route and pays him a visit.
2: I would say every day that I stop to see him and sit down to have a chat, one of us laughs out loud. I would say every single day. No question. Um, And I think if you feel obligated to be in someone's life, how genuine is that laughter?
4: Scott's been one of the few that have still been there, that... you know, the really good friends that have made the effort to stay part of his life.
2: It's been really great. It's not the same relationship. It's a different relationship because he's in a different place. And um, it's a it's a bond in some ways that we didn't have before that we have now because I know he truly appreciates our friendship. He really does. And I do, too. I, I, I appreciate his, too.
1: Bob, it turns out, was lucky after all. And it was lucky that Scott had noticed that something was wrong instead of just falling asleep as Bob faded away beside him. It was lucky that Scott knew how to stay calm in the fog. And most of all, it was lucky that Scott is the kind of friend who knows that surviving isn't about the first 48 hours. It's about the months and years that follow.
2: About two years ago he was sitting in his garage and I walked up and he said You saved my life. You saved my life. And he had um he never said that.
3: I'm alive with really? me. I, I would be, I'm dead now, you know, I'm alive.
2: And uh, I don't remember if he, what he said after that, but I just remember feeling, um, I think, you know what, I think I said, you would have done the, the same for me, Bob. Yeah, I think I said, Bob, you would have done the same for me.
1: The morning after Bob's stroke, Scott had to go back to the campsite to pick up the pieces of their trip. He returned to the Boundary Waters, paddled to their campsite, and collected the gear he'd abandoned trying to save Bob. He did it slowly, folding the fire tarp and stowing the cookware. He put off packing the tent for as long as he could. He didn't know how fully Bob would recover. He just knew that his perfect life, like this perfect trip was going to be shrouded in fog. For the rest of his life, Bob would be navigating point to point, feeling his way from the shore to the island, the island to the peninsula, trying to get back home. He might not ever find his way. All Bob could do now was aim one small step ahead and trust he would figure it out from there. All Scott could do was put the last of the gear in the canoe, and push out into the lake.
0: This episode was written, produced, and scored by Robbie Carver, and edited by Peter Frick-Wright. Jonathan Haynes provided recordings of the Boundary Waters. The Science of Survival was produced with support from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economics. The Outside Podcast is made possible by Outside Plus subscribers. Go to OutsideOnline.com/slash PodPlus to learn about all the benefits of membership, like Gaia GPS Premium, which can help you find your way in the wilderness even when you don't have cell service.